And a good morning to you again. Glad that each of you are here. I was thinking about, I was thinking about those very early teenage years. I know that's a long ways back, and long-term memory is still present, but short-term memory kind of fades. But I was thinking back to those early, very early teen years when my much older sister, who was a couple of years older than me, was then in her, well into her teenage years, and she was buying records, 45s. Some of you thought a 45 had something to do with guns, didn't you? But no, 45s. I see some old people here, and they know what 45s are. She was buying a lot of 45s. One of them that really struck me, of course, I should say, much to my parents' dismay, because she would play them on the old hi-fi in the living room, because we didn't have a record player other than that. But one of the songs that she purchased along the way was a song by the Vogues. And it's still, you still hear it from time to time if you ride in elevators. But it, it's the song, Turn Around, Look at Me, the four-part harmonies that were sung. It's a beautiful song, and I, I love this. I still like to hear it. Just, boy, it was well done. And there were some other groups did it extremely well. But I remember she had it by the Vogues, and it was a big hit for them as well back in the time. If you don't know the song, go to YouTube, look it up, listen to it. You'll know why I like the song. But the thought behind the song was the, the idea that I think a lot of young boys have when there's a girl that won't look at you. She's interested in somebody else, but you want her to be interested in you. Now, I know most of you really good-looking guys, you never had a problem with that. But some of us, we struggled with that along the way. But in the song is the idea, I'm behind you and I'm always ready. You just turn around and look at me. That goes into the kind of the thought that I have this morning is we're going to look in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. Well, actually, verse 22 through 28 we'll read, but especially verse 28 comes to mind as I talk about the providence, the providence of God and the unknown God, providence and the unknown God. And I think I just started to put providence out there. But I thought I want to tie into what Paul has to say briefly and the idea of the unknown God. But the idea of providence, I think, is an idea, it's a concept that is misunderstood, and quite often lost. And so I think it's an important subject, something for us to think about. Will I give you all the answers today? Absolutely. Will you understand them all? Probably not. No, I mean, we, it's not something I can contain within a bottle and say, here it is. Now you've got it. You've got it all understood, and here it is, because there is so much more. We're not going to fully understand that until we can fully understand the mind of God, and when is that going to be? But the idea of providence... And so as we look at Acts chapter 17, picking up in verse 22, as Paul is in Athens on Mars Hill, he's speaking to an elite crowd, and it says, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men 
to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Emphasize that. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our very being. There's one we need to contemplate. There's one we need to think about. You know, as Paul stands on this, in this place, and we don't know if there was structure there at the time or something, but as he stands on this great rock, a huge boulder in the midst of Athens, stands there on Mars Hill, as they call it, up above him, we see the Acropolis behind. And you can almost imagine Paul as he is standing there and saying, this God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Some of the great temples of the ancient world are there within their view. Powerful statement. But then he comes back and he says, remember, in him, we live and move and have our being. And that's the message. That's the message that you and I need to get. If we go back to the early history of this country and the founding of this country, some of the early leaders of our country were men of devout belief in God and women as well, were devout in their belief in God, but they did not, they did not hold a view, they did not hold the understanding, they did not believe that God interacted in the affairs, the common affairs of humans in our present time or their present time. They were known typically as deists. Some refer to it as the watchmaker God people. They believe God made the universe, he made the world, he set it all in order, put the laws in motion, created mankind, and turned them loose. I think it goes against a lot of Bible teaching, of course, from the Old Testament and so forth. But the basic belief is that God exists, created the world, but beyond that, God has no active engagement in the lives of of human beings. While it may be overly simplistic to summarize their belief system in such a way, I think I've conveyed the basic idea that's there. Perhaps they, this grew out of or drew out of that Gnostic idea from the very first century and had grown into some of the thoughts and the theologies of the, the more modern day and the science of that time. But the deist would see humanity as the instrument of would not see de, uh, humanity as the instrument of righteousness in the world as God's active hand, but just see it as the righteousness of humanity, the righteousness of humanity drawn from God. In practicality, it would make God the originator, and then an outside observer, maybe sitting on the sidelines cheering along the way. God's power would then be reserved reserved for the higher order of life in a heavenly environment, but not on earth. It was a common idea of the 17th and 18th centuries, and so thus the founders of our country, some of them held to that viewpoint. For example, I put Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, they were among those, and there were many others during that time, and those would just be a couple of them. Probably it was often a reaction to the viewpoint of some of the religions of the time, including the Roman Catholic Church, and probably a response to the cold nature that they found of the Protestant beliefs of the day 
in that God was harsh, bitter, and desired to bring about the destruction of humanity or the destruction of the soul at least. With all that in mind, and without going too far into that, I probably already have, but without just carrying on in that idea, I think that there may still be a concept today of that idea, a concept that is in us that God is not acting on us, in us, or with us today. Sitting here, you may say, no, no, that's not what I believe. But stop and think about your prayers. Think about your expectations of God. What do we expect of God? How active do we think God is today? How involved in our lives do we see God being? Sometimes we, we hesitate when we hear someone say, God spoke to me or God did this. And I'm not endorsing that, but I'm saying we so react sometimes to people stating that God is involved in lives that maybe we push ourselves far in the other direction to where God has no involvement in our lives whatsoever except to accept our worship and give us a promise of eternal life. Again, we used to see bumper stickers from time to time, and I'm not sure we see them regularly because bumper stickers have kind of gone out of fashion unless you're politically inclined. Okay. But there was a bumper sticker you would occasionally see that, I, that was kind of nice that said, more things are wrought, let's see, more things are wrought of God through prayer than this world dreams of. Something close to that. I may not have gotten exact or You may have seen one about like that. And I kind of like that. I like that idea. There's probably more at work in God. And I truly believe there's far more at work in God than we really readily acknowledge on any given occasion, on any day. So let's take a moment. Let's picture providence again and what our picture of providence might be. And we ask ourselves, what, what, is, what is my picture of providence? What is your picture of providence? Typically, we think of a miraculous action that brings benefit to an individual or a group of people, a nation, or something like that. We can go back through Bible history and we can point out God's providence in miraculous form from the beginning of time. We can, we can go back to the earliest of times, perhaps, and we can read of some of those encounters and some of those events where we see God actively, but come, come along to the time of Israel and go to Exodus 14, and the Red Sea is parted by God to allow the Israelites to go through, and yet drowning Pharaoh's army as they try to go through, providence of God. As they find themselves in the wilderness, there are occasions where water is supplied for them. Bitter water is made sweet, rocks open, and water pours forth for the people there. Manna and quail are brought to them by God's power and God's being. You can go to Exodus and you find that in Exodus 16, 17, Numbers 11. There are several places that we can read those things that God actively was involved with them and provided for them while they were in the wilderness. And there was more than that. Even as they go into the promised land, not only the parting of the river, the Jordan River, for them to cross and make their way across into the land where they needed to be <coughs> very near the city of Jericho, but how about the bringing down of the city of Jericho, bringing down of the walls? If you read in the sixth chapter of Joshua, you read in the 20th verse that when the people marched around on that seventh day, they march around and they shout, and while sometimes it may sound like in your house, like in my house, when the children are making that much noise that the walls are going to come down, we know that typically that's not what happens. And the people shouted and the walls came down. 
It wasn't their shout, but the providence of God that brought down the walls and allowed them to overwhelm and take over the city of Jericho. Many occasions follow after that throughout the events and the kings and things that happen, and I have to leave so many out, but think about Elijah as he's contesting with those prophets of Baal, and the fire comes down to show who God really is in 1 Kings 18. The protection from the fiery furnace for, for uh, the three friends of Daniel as they deal with what they're, they're dealing with. And then a little bit later, Daniel and the lion's den and the closing of the lion's mouth protecting him that, uh, in that case. Providence of God involved. But jump to the New Testament, providence of God, the raising of Lazarus in the 11th chapter of John, the escape of Peter from prison in the 12th chapter after James had been killed, and then even in Paul's ministry, so many events, but think about the raising of Eutychus there in Troas in the 20th chapter of Acts as he is brought back to life. We see God's providence active in miraculous fashions on many occasions throughout the pages of the Bible. But you say, that was then. That was then. And so I think sometimes when I ask this question, what is our picture of providence, I think when we desire God's interaction, and we call it providence, God's providence, what we're often thinking about is an obvious change through a miraculous fashion, an obvious change in circumstances by a healing, somebody being healed. How many times have we prayed for somebody to be healed? Or even the raising of the dead. We don't want it to be so when we hear about it sometimes. The removal of a problem, whether it's business, life, uh, or some other problem that comes in, a family comes into our lives. I said that wrong, but you get our, my meaning there. Even the sudden change in the weather. If the tornado's coming your way, haven't you prayed? Sure. What do we expect? What are we expecting when we pray to God? What are we expecting God to do? What kind of action are we wanting him to take? I think typically we want, we want to hear the voice of God. We want to hear it clearly and audibly, telling us what he is doing and directing us in what he wants us to do. When we think of providence, I think we think that way. We want to be able to define God's work, God's providence. We want to be able to define God's providence as something different from ordinary circumstance in life. I think we, in that way, are a little bit like Naaman. You remember the Old Testament story of Naaman where he goes with his leprosy and finds his way to the house of Elisha, and Elisha doesn't even come out to see him but sends a servant out. You remember what Naaman thought? If you've read that story, go back and read it again in 2 Kings 5. Naaman goes away saying, he's angry because he said, I thought he would at least, he would at least come out here and, and do some sort of magic trick. That's not his terminology. Put his hand on the spot or say something, do something like that. We sometimes are a little bit like Naaman. We want that flash of light. We want that special moment. You see, he wanted, and I think sometimes we want, to be able to just say, let go and let God. But you know, the book of Hebrews reminds us at the outset, in the very first verse, the very first chapter, that God has operated in different ways in different times through the ages, according to the needs and the opportunities of the time. 
I think we need to get that in our mind as we think about the providence of God, that God has operated as needed to show himself and to show his care and his work throughout the ages. And so I take us to our thoughts and what we need to get out of this, I think. Here we find providence. And I kind of distort something here when I draw off of Hebrews 11.1. 1, I say it's the evidence of things not seen. It's the belief that God is acting. It's the faith that God is acting even when we don't necessarily see the hand of God within it. So let's try to broaden our definition of providence and God's actions. If you go to the dictionary or you do an internet search like I did real quickly, you know, and you throw it out there and you find out what Google has to say about it, it is defined, providence is defined as a timely preparation for future eventualities. Now, try and roll that one off your tongue two or three times, but you get the meaning. It is preparing for what yet may be in a positive way. So if we take a definition like that and we combine it with the general protective care of God, I think we're beginning to get the picture in mind. Then the applications of God's providence run far beyond those special miraculous events that we can find in the historical evidences in the Bible. Run far further than the visible or tangible miracle that maybe something within us longs to see. So what I want to do for you I just want you to understand that God's providence is here. It's now. It's real. And sometimes we just simply overlook it. We just simply miss it. We just don't pay attention. We take for granted so many things. Let me give you five real quick. Let me give you five real quick. If we uncover God's providence, I think we see every day is the providence of God. This day is the providence of God. Oh, so the psalmist had it right. This is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Not just Sunday, every day. Every day is the providence of God. From sunrise to sunset to sunrise again, it is his work. You go back to Genesis, and he looked at it after he created and separated light from darkest night and day and all the other creations that come in, and he puts it all into place, and God looks at it and said, it's very good. We'll go over to Genesis 8, and what he tells Noah when Noah comes out of the ark. I almost said Moses came out of the ark. When Noah came out of the ark, what did he tell him there? He said, I'm going to keep seed time and harvest and rain and everything else. I'm going to keep things flowing just like they're supposed to. Verse 20, I'm going to do that. God's providence. Or as the Hebrew writer states it in the third verse of that first chapter, when he writes, he upholds all things by the word of his might. Talking about Christ and his involvement and even, even what is yet to be for us. So every day, every day, every day that we see, every night that we sleep, everything that's in this day is the providence of God. It's not overlooked. It's not by accident. It's not just rote routine. It is God's providence that keeps it there. Secondly, and here's a tough one. Here's a tough one. Children are God's providence, especially our own. Sometimes I wish they were somebody else's, but children are God's providence. I'm just joking. 
not that yeah, they're God's. Anyway, you got the, the joking part of it. Children are God's providence. They remind us of life. They remind us of responsibility. They remind us of opportunity. And there is nothing in the world, if you've ever been a mom or a dad, there's nothing in the world that can compare when you pick up that child for the very first time and realize a new life has been placed within your care. They're God's reminder, God's providence of life and continuing and gifts so much. And thirdly, as we may seem stretching it a little bit, but I think even small acts of kindness are exhibitions of God's providence. We see it by the hands of others. We see the kind deed that is done. Common courtesy, somebody allowing you in at a busy traffic time, somebody holding a door for you, maybe a small thing, somebody patting you on the back, somebody helping you pick up something you drop, and that's one thing good about getting older. Somebody else that's younger will reach down and pick it up for you sometimes. Small acts of kindness that people undertake for someone else. Aren't they a response to God at the heart of it? Even people who don't necessarily believe in God for the basic concepts of loving God, but secondly as to what? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Isn't that derived from God? Didn't Jesus even teach in Matthew 5? That's Leviticus 19, Matthew 5. Jesus, didn't he teach to love your enemies? He said, you've been taught love your, love your friends and hate your enemies. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies. Common courtesy. Even small acts of kindness are exhibitions of God's providence set before us. And fourth, I think there are daily in our lives, if we'll see them, gentle reminders, and sometimes not so gentle reminders of God's providence. If we're just willing to see them, you say, well, what are you talking about, gentle reminders? Well, sometimes wives are pretty good about reminding you what you're supposed to be, those reminders of what we're supposed to be. But I was thinking of one in particular that stood out to me this week, forgiveness. Forgiveness providence of God and the ongoing nature of it. Isn't that what John is getting at in 1 John 1 and verse 7? And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Go on into the second chapter when he said that he is a propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. If any sin, we have an advocate with him, he, he just said. That's not a gentle reminder. That's an in-your-face. You need to be reminded there is forgiveness every single day for you and me. We don't have to run around unforgiven. A gentle reminder of God's providence for us. And then fifthly, and that's the last one I'll lay out for you, and we probably could go a whole lot further. I thought of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, of faith, hope, and love. And he says, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. But I thought about the word hope was what came to my mind at first. We emphasize, we emphasize faith and love a lot. And yes, they are forward-looking. Yes, they are dependent words. Yes, they are words that, that are involved and engaged with others around about us. But that word hope, 
the word hope ought to stand out in our minds. When we think about the providence of God, he gives us, along with that faith and along with that love, he gives us hope. There's a reason we can go forward. There's something that we can see, something that we can do, something we can look forward to. There is hope because these are the assurances that make life worth living. So wrapping it all up, just take in the air that you breathe, and you have to know it is the providence of God, and it's not just some cosmic accident that brought us here, and it's not just some wind-up watch that keeps it going. The deists missed it. We are not our own, and we are not on our own. In many ways and in every day, God's providence is with us. But let me give you a note. Because the greatest evidence and the greatest note of God's providence, while all of these are there every day, the greatest note of God's providence is noticed in the, that probably most familiar verse in the New Testament. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. If you want to write a definition for providence, that verse writes it. God loves us and gives us the opportunity of life in the only place that it can be found eternal, and that's in Him. This morning, we'll sing that song of encouragement that Josh has for us this morning. If there's someone who needs to respond, if you consider the need of your life and the turning to God, if you've never been baptized into Christ, let us encourage you to think seriously on that. If you came with that thought and that hope in mind today, let us help you with it. If there's another need that you want to make known, the opportunity and our blessing to share it with you is here today. All you need to do is come while we stand to sing together.